The Snitching System Red Squads Fusion Centers There are many avenues in this awful program. In today's show, we will explore that. Threat Assessment and Gang Stalking That is the focus of this edition of Expressions. Welcome to this edition of Expressions. I'm your host, Sierra Tavares-Reyes. In today's topic, we will explore threat assessment and gang stalking. Many targeted individuals wonder how they could be placed on the list in the first place. Who has the power or the authority to do such a thing? If you live in a country such as the United Kingdom, your local councils have this ability as displayed in the Jane Clift case. If you live in the U.S. or Canada, it might be the task of what's called a threat assessment team. This team can be compromised of just a few individuals to a team of individuals. It depends on the company, educational facility, or community they are representing and what the specific needs are. Some examples include members of human resource, police officers, psychiatrists, mental health professionals, senior members of the department or division. In some cases, there may be just a small team who then liaison with various other departments. The team members are pre-selected, so the team is already in place. The team should be generally trained in assessing workplace violence, violence on campus, what to do, who to call, and they might also be trained in profiling an individual to enable them to make an assessment of whether an individual is a threat versus a non-threat to the environment around them. The threat assessment team and who they are compromised of seem to make no concessions or allowances for being evaluated by a team of peers. In court cases, they try to encourage a variety of jurors so that a person being judged can be evaluated by a peer of their jurors. This, in theory, allows for fairer trials and outcomes. With the threat assessment teams, there are no such guidelines for who the team is compromised of or would make up the team or what the team should be made up of. This may or may not account for why the targeted individual community has seen an above average targeting of females and minorities. In addition, dissenters such as whistleblowers, extreme extremist site members, and conspiracy site members 
are also starting to show up above average. Once in place, the team is ready to take tips from the community around them. Generally, the team will liaison with human resources, the police, employee assistance program, mental health, and when a report comes in, they use these other resources to assist with their assessment of the target. Reports can be filed via a form. The reports can be filed anonymously. This means that the person making the accusation need not have any accountability for making a false report. This might not be the case in every area, but in most of the threat assessment guidelines I came across, reports could be filed anonymously. Keep in mind that the report are the reports are likely primarily initiated by human resources, campus resources, etc. However, anonymous reporting of any kind leaves an organization open to abuses of the system that might be difficult to identify or remedy. The threat assessment team works in a four-part process. One, identify persons of concern. Two, gather information, investigate. Three, assess information and situation. Four, manage the situation. Identification of person of concern. Once a target is chosen or a concern is forwarded to the threat assessment team, it's time for them to liaison and start to profile and assess if the target is a concern for further evaluation or monitoring, or if the case can be closed. The, this threat assessment guide from the post office is interesting. Here are some of the criterias it uses to assess if a target could be a threat. Obsessive focus on grudge, often quick to perceive unfairness or malice in others, especially supervisor. Especially for males, great concerns or emphasis on sexual fidelity of mates. Recent stressful events or severe losses. Perceived loss of options. Direct or veiled threats of bodily harm towards supervisory personnel, co-workers, or customers. Physical deterioration, headaches, cancer, disability, kidney failure, etc. Extreme sense of moral righteousness about things in general as well as believing that the organization does not follow its own policy and procedures. Inability to handle constructive criticism well and projecting blame onto others. Demonstrated disregard for safety or coworkers. Tendency to be a loner with little family or social support and often have, having an excessive investment in the job. Gathering of information and investigating. To gather information on the target, 
These threat assessment teams use a variety of sources. They use a person's friends, family, social networking circles, co-workers, neighbors, and other resources. Triage questions can include, has there been indications of suicidal thoughts, plans, or attempts? Has there been indications of thoughts, plans of violence? Does the person have access to a weapon or are they trying to gain access? Are there concerns about the well-being of the subject? Are there concerns about the safety of the community? If yes, a full inquiry is recommended. Gather information, full inquiry. Think broadly and creatively about those who might have information. Co-workers, other staff, friends, family, online friends, websites, etc. Previous schools, employers, others. Document information and use it to answer the key investigative questions. Many targeted individuals express concerns often that their families, friends, people online, and others are playing a role in their monitoring or taking part, that they are somehow in on it, well, according to what this threat evaluation guideline dictates, they are often in on it and asked to be part of the monitoring and evaluation process. They use a variety of sources in the target's environment, but because reports do come in remotely, there is a cause for error or even false reporting of events. These reports are used to keep targets on monitoring for years to come. Many people believe that the social networking sites that they use are harmless, but when it comes to being evaluated as to whether you are a threat to your social circle, you will see that these sites have now begun to play a critical and integral role in assisting the teams to make their initial assessments. If unaware of the guidelines being used to assess them, targets could well be entrapped or tricked into making suggestive statements. Also, once those around the target perceive that the target is under investigation, normal everyday behaviors that would have been brushed aside become significant and everything that the target does is a cause for alarm. The threat assessment team will also circumvent laws such as FERPA and HIPAA to get around laws that would usually prevent an invasion of the target's rights and privacy. Information sharing, FERPA. FERPA is not an impediment to effective threat assessment and case management. FERPA governs records only, not observations, communications, etc. FERPA does not govern police records. If created and maintained by law enforcement for law enforcement purpose, new guidance from ED 
encourages information sharing where public safety is a concern. FERPA does not permit a private right of action. When we come back, we will talk about assessing information and situation right after this break. Assessing information and situation. Once all the reports are in from the eyes and ears around the target, then the assessing of information begins. Think creatively about resources as well as eyes and ears. Anticipate likely change in short and midterm and how the subject may react. Monitor using available resources. Who sees the person regularly? inside work or campus, outside, on the weekends, and online, etc. The threat assessment team will use the information gathered, gathered together to determine if the target should be referred to any third parties. This could include law enforcement, employee assistance program, mental health workers, or others. They evaluate if the person might be a danger to themselves or others, if the person is able to take care of themselves, do they pay rent on time? Do they buy groceries? Are they suicidal, a threat to others, etc.? If these criteria are not met, they might try to convince a judge or a healthcare worker that a mental health hold is required or some other form of intervention. Information is recorded and reported 24-7 and often stored in some form of centralized database. The records are cross-referenced with police and other contacts. Now this procedure was in place well before the fusion centers ever came into existence. However, it is not out of the question to assume that fusion centers might well be used in future or linked into the process even if they were not initially used. Once a targeted, once a target is listed for monitoring, even if they move away from the university, place of employment, or community, if they are still perceived to be a threat to others, the remote monitoring or case management will continue. The target will be monitored as long as they are perceived as a threat. There is no current limit to how many years the state can continue this monitoring, imposition and disruption of the target's life. If someone who has been reviewed by the threat assessment team leaves the area do you continue to monitor him or her? If the situation warrants reviewing the case after the subject leaves the area, the team will continue to do so. It is important to remember 
that when the subject has relationships in his or her life, there is a lesser chance for violence to occur. A failure to communicate or interact with the subject encourages problems to fester, which could lead to violence. Also, under many of these occupational health and safety guidelines, the target's information can and will be shared with those that are likely to come in contact with. Remember, as the case is being monitored, any incidents, perceived threats, strange behavior, anything at all can be reported to this team for assessment and evaluation. If the team feels that a change in behavior constitutes a threat, the team might upgrade the targets to something along the lines of medium risk, danger to self or others, should only be seen in pairs. Manage the situation. The threat assessment team might also add specific quirks of the target to their files, things that the general public might be made aware of, such as if the target starts to pace, it could be a sign of an imminent attack. Assessment. Case priority levels. Priority one, extreme risk. Poses clear, immediate threat of violence or self-harm and requires immediate containment, law enforcement involvement, target protection, and case management plan. Priority two, high risk. Poses threat of violence or self-harm but lacks immediacy or access to target, requires active monitoring and case management plan. Priority three, moderate risk, does not pose threat of violence or self-harm, but exhibits significantly, significantly disruptive behaviors or needs assistance, requires active monitoring case management plan, and appropriate referrals. Priority four, low risk, does not pose threat of violence or self-harm at this time, but may exhibit some disruptive behavior and or need for assistance, requires passive monitoring, utilize case management and referrals as appropriate. Priority five, no identified risk, does not pose threat of violence or self-harm, nor is there evidence of disruption to the community. No case management or monitoring required. It can be clearly shown that the monitoring is indeed a part of the guidelines that these threat assessment teams do follow. Once the plan is developed, it needs to be implemented and monitored. Teams should include implementation and monitoring responsibilities as part of the case management plan. Further referrals may be necessary. Teams should continue to follow up as necessary. What targets may wish to do in the future is redirect FOIA or Freedom of Information Act requests to these agencies. Targets may also wish to have their lawyers 
make a cease and desist request to these threat assessment teams in regards to the overly invasive monitoring that is allowed. In future, targeted individuals might even be able to come together and aim a class action lawsuits or individual lawsuits and human rights lawsuits at these teams. Slander suits and others might also be suitable. What would also be nice is to gain some statistics on who is being monitored via these threat assessment teams. Which case files were closed versus which ones are still open? How many years does the average case stay open for? Ages, genders, race. How many were whistleblowers or belong to a dissident, extremist, conspiracy or protest group? How many cases ended in suicide, incarceration, institutionalization, and homelessness? These might be the things that future targeted individuals look into as they seek assistance in stopping the monitoring, surveillance, and life disruptions and curtailing the abuses that are being that they are being experienced under these programs. With these threat assessment teams, it's extremely important to realize that if the threat assessment team is composed of one group and they are assigned to make a threat assessment of another group or individual, you might not have a fair and balanced assessments because these teams do not take into considerations, cultural norms, gender, racial, sexual, or other biases that might be present or underlying within the assessment team. The assessment team is essentially playing judge, jury, and executioner with their assessments of these individuals. Thus, if the courts are required in many cases to use a fair and balanced jury of peers should the threat assessment teams be morally or legally required to do so in the future. Fusion Centers and TLO. The informant system is not just for using paid informants. They are also using an army of volunteer informants. The citizen informants who are parts of various community programs or who were indu inducted via their place of employment. The ACLU has released a report on fusion centers. 800,000 operatives will be dispersed throughout every American city and town. Set to report on even the most common everyday behaviors, which will go into state, local, and regional linked databases. This number of 800,000 is outside of other informant programs that are already in place within America. Informants are working via Citizens Corps and other sub-programs. There are informant programs for local businesses, informant programs for truckers, boats, and so many others. TIPS officially died 
but lived on in many other forms. We'll be right back after this. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? Don't you wish your girlfriend was a freak like me? Don't you? Don't you? Don't you wish your girlfriend was raw like me? Don't you wish your girlfriend was fun like me? Red Squads. In the United States, Red Squads were police intelligence units that specialized in infiltrating, conducting countermeasures, and gathering intelligence on political and social groups during the 20th century, dating as far back as the Haymarket Riot in 1886. Red Squads became common in larger cities, such as Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles during the first Red Scare of the 1920s. They were set up as specialized units of city police departments as a weapon against labor unions, communists, anarchists, and other dissidents. After the civil unrest during Johnson's administration, Watergate during Nixon's administration, and the public exposure of COINTELPRO by a dissident organization in 1971. Widespread criticism of the Red Squads for illegal and undemocratic tactics emerged in 1975 in the wake of the both of the Watergate scandal and the exposure of COINTELPRO. The Church Committee was formed to investigate overstepping on the part of federal law enforcement and intelligence gathering agencies. Following the recommendations of that committee, the U.S. Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, better known as FISA, in 1978, placing limits on the power of police and federal agencies. This ended the official use of Red Squads. Since 1978, the term Red Squad has resurfaced repeatedly to describe any action by police or federal agencies that is deemed to be oppressive to a social or political group. The term Red Squad has been used to describe the New York City Police Department infiltration of liberal groups, first in preparation for the 2004 Republican National Convention, and then continuing until today. The Expressions Podcast has been brought to you by Anchor. I want to thank you all for listening. Like what you just heard? Then please make a small donation to sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash Sierra Tavares Reyes. Thank you.